Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters, a podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm Avery Martin, co-host and digital media strategist. And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. But don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff. Today, we're sitting down with Dr. Andy Persh, Associate Professor in the Department of Occupational Therapy at Colorado State University and Director of the Transition, Employment, and Technology Lab. Andy, welcome. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Avery. Of course. Thank you. We're glad to have you join us. We're looking forward to hearing both about what you do on campus and, of course, the, the, the bigger picture of, of Andy as a human being in addition to a, a scholar and an academic. And so... We're going to start with campus. I'm always interested in sort of big questions or big problems that people pursue. So tell us a little bit about sort of the big problems you and your team are pursuing. You bet. Thank you. So a big problem is employment of people with disabilities, or rather the unemployment or underemployment of people with disabilities. For context, children with disabilities receive special education and related services. Uh, you know, that includes early intervention from birth to three but then special education until age 21. And you know that's a substantial benefit to citizens in our country. Yet, post-secondary outcomes, after school outcomes for students with disabilities remain quite poor. Within the context of special education, those outcomes are broadly categorized in terms of education, employment, and independent living. Mm. And so those are the outcomes that school districts are responsible for uh, tracking and reporting on an annual basis. So outcomes are particularly challenging for those who have intellectual disabilities, autism, orthopedic impairments, or those who have multiple disabilities. In the context of employment, there is uh, a 20 to 30 point gap between children with disabilities and their peers that don't have disabilities. And a, a specific example of that would be, say, the difference between an intellectual disability in, in the years immediately following high school, you'd observe something like a 39% employment rate hmm. among those with intellectual disabilities. Wow. And so it's 30 points higher for someone with a learning disability, you know, for example, dyslexia. And so the mission of my transition employment and technology lab is to improve those post-secondary employment outcomes for individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities through the adaptation, development, and deployment of assessments and interventions. And as occupational therapists, the reason why I'm interested in employment is because it's a, a primary area of occupation. It's sure, a thing yeah. that occupies much of a human's life and attention. And also, employment is so strongly connected, causally connected, to things like health and socioeconomic status mm -hmm. and quality of life. Yeah. And so if we're able to move the needle on employment, we have a high confidence that there are going to be follow-along effects. The other dominoes start to fall if we can get at the core, right? That's right. right. You know, there's, I, I don't know this, but I assume that there's probably a sense of, of full membership of a community when one is employed as well, right? Mm. That's right. So for us, for people with intellectual disabilities, their participation in the community and independence and in their activities of daily living, their socialization is primarily through education or employment. And mm. when those things are absent, only about 10% 
of that population has any socialization or community participation wow. on, say, a weekly basis. Yeah, my goodness. The impact is enormous, isn't it? Holy cow. Absolutely. And speaking of which, tell us an impact story. How have you seen the transition employment and technology lab truly make a difference in someone's life? Sure. So I worked with my research partner. His name is Dr. Dennis Cleary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the time, we were both faculty in occupational therapy at Ohio State University. So we were the, the Ohio yes. State. Yes. All caps. <laughs> uh, we worked with partners in special education. Uh, You know, those are the folks that are responsible for birth to age 21 and then partners in vocational rehabilitation. So those are the adult systems that are 22 plus, say, to develop the vocational fit assessment, which is a accurate person centered measure of work related adaptive behaviors. And this informs job placement and customized employment decision making. Beyond working with uh, Dr. Cleary, we partnered with a group called Project Search. This is the gold standard uh, intervention to support transition to employment for youth with developmental disabilities and kind of simply uh, what they do in the last year of special education eligibility. So picture like a 19 or 20 year old. Students complete a series of three internships in a host business. And what that host business is or can be is is quite diverse. Uh, most of them will be in the healthcare sector or the hospitality sector, but you'll also see project search programs in retail, food service, logistics. You know, there are, there are a lot of folks working in places like Walmart shipping and receiving and sure. Amazon these okay. days. That's great. So this intensive work-based instruction, a series of three internships, has some pretty great outcomes. And over the years, the project search outcomes are consistently 30 to 60 points higher than the national averages. Wow. Yeah, so, so very impressive. Now, project search needed an assessment, a tool to help them decide which internships should be used for each student and in what order. And so the vocational fit assessment fills this gap. And to make the vocational fit assessment available, we created a a website called vocfit.com. And this is the knowledge translation tool that we use to get it in the hands of people. And so VocFit is a custom designed web app. And over seven years, the registered user base has grown to now 13,000 employment support professionals across wow. North America yeah. uh, and Europe. So on an individual level, VocFit helps to identify needs and supports the decision-making for job development and placement. And so then these benefits are not only experienced by the young adult with a disability, but their circles of support, right? Parents, caregivers, other family members, and friends. That is so cool. It it is, isn't it? And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but so there's a licensing or IP aspect to VocFit, right? So there's a a marriage of occupational therapy scholarship and entrepreneurship, but both pointed in the same direction of, of casting as why because as researchers, we, we, you know, we often don't share this other than in our publications that, you know, have an N of five or 10 or 15 and, you know, big enough, right, to, to have it be somebody's thesis or dissertation. Right. But often one of the challenges is how do I have my impact scale appropriately? And you are doing that really nicely. So tell us a little bit about that. You bet. So uh, there are definitely intellectual property complexities with this. You know, I I didn't have much insight into that until I actually 
started in a faculty position. I, th- I think the parallel piece of it is sustainability and commercialization. And so we do hope to commercialize VocFit in a way that helps to sustain it. Mm. We didn't create this to get rich. Sure, sure. Um, and, and to this point, we've made VocFit available for free to everyone. And that's possible through the support of you know the state of Ohio, the state of Colorado, right. uh, and also now the National Institutes of Health. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. It's neat to see it scale like that, isn't it? So, so I'm, I'm always interested in, you know, if you can think about, and, and sometimes it's a moment, an epiphany. Other times it sort of a, it comes over a period of time. But when did the, I want to be a researcher light bulb go on in your head? And this is where we begin to invoke, you know, mentors and uh, people that have had a significant influence on your pathway. Sure. So uh, I trained uh, at the bachelor's level in occupational therapy. So graduated in 2005. In 2007, our profession mandated that all future OT graduates would need to be at the master's level. And so I was the lat at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. I was the last cohort that had a choice. Mm. And so I completed uh, my bachelor's, but also decided to stay and, and do a master's right away because I didn't want to have to always talk about why should I hire you when all these other folks have master's degrees. Right. So uh, you know, the, the requirements to be an occupational therapist were part of my bachelor's, which really meant that my master of science uh, in occupational therapy was a, a research-focused degree. So I first discovered kind of that research interest as an undergraduate at UWM in the third course of my research series, you know, so the semester that I'm graduating. Then went on to, to do a master's thesis, spending most of my time in the lab uh, and, and feeling and enjoying that culture. I took my master's thesis. I moved it towards a national presentation. I presented it at the American Occupational Therapy Association's annual conference. Good. Um, you know, with the support of some mentors. Yeah. And I also stayed in touch to uh, work on moving it towards publication. Oh, great. Yeah. And so that was a process that took about two years. Hmm. Um, so lesson to our audiences, publications don't happen overnight, right? There's right. a lot of work that goes into even being ready to write it. And then... Yeah. So, you know, uh, you know, first submissions, couple of rounds of reviews, mm-hmm. and then ultimately we got a rejection after mm-hmm. a couple of rounds of reviews. Oh, and that was, that was pretty disappointing. So then I learned that that's not the end of the road. Right. It's figuring out, you know, taking those reviews, making it better finding the next journal. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately, it was the second journal uh, that accepted it. And so I was working as a school-based occupational therapist in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm on my summer break. um, And I get you know, the email saying your article's been accepted for publication. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hooray. And also like, I'm capable of this. Yeah. And this could be a pretty cool way to make a living. Sure. Yeah. Um, And I might be able to contribute differently with this skill set. That's great. So uh, the full circle piece is that I now teach the third research course in our occupational therapy doctorate. It's so great in yeah. those stories like this. Uh-huh. And so that that's quite a perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that when I was in that spot, my professors didn't expect me to, to go on to a PhD, <laughs> much less secure, you know, NIH level funding. Sure. Uh, and, and so as I look now at the classroom, I really do try to 
give them all that respect yeah. mm. um, because that pathway, should they choose it, is open to them. And it's a pretty cool pathway. It's so neat. And, it, you know, it's these moments are kind of special because I, I had the same opportunity here. Mm. You know, I had an undergraduate uh, mentor in an exercise physiology class who shoved me into grad school. I mean, almost literally. Uh, and I got to teach that class here for, you know, 20 years. It yeah. was, and I never forgot him. Every time I taught that class, I thought about him. It's pretty cool. That's that's neat. Thank you for sharing that. I you appreciate bet. it. That is so great. If you don't mind, I wouldn't mind rewinding to the first moment that you wanted to pursue OT. Like what made you want to be in the realm of occupational therapy? Uh, you bet. Uh, I went to Marquette University High School in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Oh, okay. It's a Jesuit prep school, you know, to Marquette University. Mm-hmm. Um, and in line with those values in your senior year, Everyone uh, takes two weeks off of school and goes to do service. Mm. And so I went to do service uh, at Curative Rehabilitation, really one of the great rehab centers in the country. Mm-hmm. And I spent my days in a TBI day program. Oh, wow. And uh, that program was run by an occupational therapist. Kind of an interesting point. My mother is a physical therapist. And okay. so I, I grew up around the clinic. Sure. Um, but I, I didn't know occupational therapy until that point, right at age 18. Sure. And uh, those two weeks with the, with that therapist and, and those folks changed the trajectory of my life. Wow. wow. I had college applications, right? I had applied to all my schools with an interest in law enforcement. You know, by the time the service project came around, it's spring of my senior year. I've done all the applications. I've gotten my acceptances. Yeah. But those things weren't aligned with OT. And so I had to look at the institutions, <laughs> what has OT, and it was University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And so that uh, led me to staying at home, mm-hmm. more or less, for, for uh, my OT training, and I haven't looked back. Talk to us about your doctoral training and, and the transition, our recruitment efforts to get you and, and keep you here as part of our academic family. So, uh, you know, kind of the pathway to to CSU. I did that master's degree, and that definitely sparked the research interest. I had the opportunity to stay and do a PhD right away on, on a funded project, and I declined that. I knew I wanted to practice first nice. and, uh, you know, develop my own questions through the lens of practice. So uh, I went to practice in the public schools in Madison, Wisconsin, but was looking at PhD programs and mentors the whole time. Ultimately, I embarked on a a very deliberate plan to identify and connect with a mentor in pediatric occupational therapy. Ultimately, I connected with Dr. Jane K. Smith at The Ohio State University. Nice. Um, She is uh, on the... Mount Rushmore of Pediatric Occupational Therapy Scholarship, you know, writes the textbook that we use in the pediatric courses here. And so I went to Ohio State. Uh, Her interest was not transitioned to adulthood. And I had a small interest at at that point in time. Her background really was much more the younger kids, the NICU, early intervention, you know, Mm. the early, um, the elementary years. But kids get older. And, you know, at the time when I met her, she had been treating and and working with kids Mm -hmm. and those kids get older. Right. Um, And so she was observing that despite all the serious and good therapy and early intervention that 
that kids are getting uh, in childhood, those post-secondary outcomes remain poor. Mm-hmm. And so that was the kind of piece or, or the perspective that opened her up to my working towards this uh, adolescent, young adult, adulthood piece of the pie. Uh, a couple other uh, mentors have been important. Uh, Dr. Ginny Stoffel uh, at uh, Wisconsin-Milwaukee has definitely uh, supported my interest in professional service and leadership. And then Dr. Brent Braveman, who is the Director of Rehabilitation Services at MD Anderson, mm-hmm. mentored me through that deliberate plan towards the PhD. How did you hook up with him, just out of curiosity? So here's a couple of connections then. In 2010, Ginny was the vice president, I might get the years a little bit wrong, the vice president of the American Occupational Therapy Association. She had done her PhD in leadership. And so one of the things that she was doing with AOTA was leadership development. And so they funded a a program called the Emerging Leaders Development Program. And through that, and based on her uh, recommendation, I was matched with Brent. Uh And and then we embark on this uh, one-year process of leadership development. Sure, And and a big piece of that was this pathway towards uh, PhD. Oh, that's great. What an opportunity. Right. Yeah. Because yeah, not many of us get that. We're, you know, it's a wing and a prayer sometimes, yeah, right? right? Yeah, it, it was absolutely fantastic. And, and so now I've been fortunate, right? I, I've been on that Emerging Leaders Development Committee that has turned into appointed positions with AOTA and ultimately a nationally elected leadership position with what, what are called our special interest sections. And so I chaired our special interest sections council for three years, one year as chair-elect and then three years as chair. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, that group is meant to provide the venue for practicing occupational therapists to engage with each other around areas of shared interest. And, and that really it was a privilege to work with those professionals. Wow, I'll say. Yeah. My goodness. So when, when did you land at CSU? I landed at CSU in 2018. And so this is the start of my sixth full year here. All right. Flies by. We're lucky to have you. So so when you're not serving in leadership positions in the AOTA or teaching or mentoring students or pursuing your scholarship, what what does Andy do to have fun off campus? What What does life look like outside the boundaries of CSU? Well, admittedly, employment <laughs> is a primary occupation for me as well. So I yeah. do I do put in a lot of work. But outside of work, uh, there are things like spending time with my wife, with mm-hmm. family, with friends, dogs. Nice. Uh, taking those dogs to the many breweries around town, <laughs> hiking, biking, paddle boarding. Uh, in the last year, uh, I've gotten into rafting, river rafting. Oh, nice. And a, a key piece is Colorado sunshine. That's quite a contrast in, in terms of uh, Ohio and Colorado. I love <laughs> yes. that we have 300 days of sun. <laughs> it is remarkable, isn't it? We're lucky to live out here. For sure. We are. So I, I'm interested if you have a, a favorite moment from whitewater rafting that you might be willing to share with us. So this past summer, I did a uh, week-long trip uh, with a number member of our faculty, Dr. John Weaver, mm-hmm. oh, nice. um, on the Salmon River in Idaho. 
Uh, and so that was uh, difficult to get to, right, with, mm-hmm. the, with the work obligations. Sure. Yeah. It was a bit of a, a challenge to let go of work for a week yeah. mm-hmm. and truly go off the grid. But it was lovely. And what I learned is that I can I can do both. Yeah, that's I can good. work hard and I can also make time for these other things. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Good. And I feel like that's a key piece of occupational therapy too. Being able to truly balance and coordinate work and life. Ideally, it is. Yeah, <laughs> um, we're we're not always the best at doing it for ourselves. Right. It is it is a core tenant. But you mm. know, to the extent that we can, um, it is important. And I've been able to do to do that balance more and more. That's good. uh, With each year of experience here in Colorado. You know, it's not entirely unique to the academy, of course, but but being successful depends on a a willingness to really work hard, right? And, you know, we often talk about, and I don't think this is really a cliche. In many ways, there's, there's some truth to this. There are stages in academic life, for example, when you're pursuing tenure, Mm -hmm. right? Where there's a bit of volatility and I'm uncertain, right? You know, but it's what I love to see, of course, is folks that secure tenure and continue that trajectory of that willingness to work hard and to pour into other people and pursue right. their scholarship, et cetera, et cetera. The challenge here is obvious. You've just articulated it. You know, I'm on my way to the Salmon River and it's, you know, you almost have to be deliberate about extracting your mind <laughs> from thoughts about what's going on at work or what's my next grant I need to write or whatever it is and say, let me enjoy Idaho. Let me enjoy the cold water and, and great friends and whatever that might be. But it does take some effort, doesn't it? I can give you an example of that effort. So uh, Dr. Patty Davies and I submitted a Department of Education grant this summer. And I was working on that grant up until the deadline in the truck as we were driving to (laughs) Idaho. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, The grant got in. Uh, I'm happy to say that it has just gotten funded. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, you know, so that changes perspective too. You know, when I, when I was doing it, I'm like, why did, why did I put this on myself? Sure. And, uh, in getting it, a piece of it is I can handle it. Yeah. Yeah. I I probably can handle it better yet. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, that really is a a nice thing to feel kind of a a special piece of value, right? There there are things that we can do that are going to make our communities and and hopefully our country and, and the world better. Yeah. Well said. Love that. Well said. Speaking of making the world better, dive in a little bit to VocFit. How is VocFit solving this big problem that we face? So for more than a decade now, I've uh, said that positive post-secondary outcomes tend to result from the effort of exceptional individuals rather than exceptional systems of service. Mm-hmm. And certainly it's important to be grateful for the the very good systems that we have in the U.S., but we can't replicate that human. And and so I I firmly believe that we need to figure out ways to work uh, these valuable practices and approaches into systems. So VocFit is my attempt to share that an exceptional system with the world. I am sure that it helps to improve employment outcomes for people with intellectual developmental disabilities. And so an example of this is um, VocFit is now a required component of the Project Search Models Fidelity tool. So you must use VocFit. If you want to claim that you're being faithful to the project search model. That has to be really gratifying. Yeah. It is. It is. Um, when we started with project search, they they were operating in 
approximately 200 sites across the U.S. Uh, and, and the reason we got connected with them so closely was Ohio. They're mm. based at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Um, we were at Ohio State. And so that was close, but not too close for us to be able to um, work together effectively. So now there are more than 700 project oh, search sites goodness. around the world. Wow. That's incredible. Um, all of them are expected to be using VocFit. Each of those sites is staffed by a special ed teacher and also a, a skills trainer or job coach. And they are um, working with a group of five to eight, sometimes 12 people with developmental disabilities. And so each and every year, there's 3,500 uh, to 5,000 young adults with developmental disabilities going through Project Search. And so the impact then is felt by, by many, right? By the young adults with disabilities, by their circles of support. Ultimately, I hope that, that we can improve their employment trajectory improve those outcomes. Um, and, and in doing so, they've found a, a place of employment that fits them well. Right. And that also then is uh, connecting them to those kind of other outcome areas, right? Community participation, yeah. socialization, uh, all important parts of health. Now, Andy, are, are there common misconceptions about the work that you do? And, and if so, how do you respond to them? I would say that the big picture things that I've had to uh, work through the most is whether or not I'm talking about assessment or intervention. Okay. Hmm. And VocFit is a decision-making tool. And so it, it is kind of in this gray space. As I've moved it forward and looked for funding, I have to tailor that presentation and be very clear with you know, what this is. Sure. I don't just apply to say NIH, so I can't just use a medical model right. for yeah. it. I'm applying to education, to rehab funders, to occupational therapy. So each one of those is a little bit of a different perspective. They're all, all a different grant format. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, NIH, 12 pages, sure. National Institute on Disability Independent Living Rehabilitation Research, sometimes 40 or 75 pages. Wow. So figuring out how to package those things. Yeah. And so, you know, in terms of increasing the competitiveness of my work, there was this additional layer of challenge in that my feedback was coming in these different formats. Sure. And what uh, the different funders were focused on would vary. And so it, it took really about four years and 25 unfunded proposals before I was at the place where I had enough feedback and I truly knew it. And, and that I could make the informed decisions about which way to push each one of, say, like the weaknesses in a, in a grant review. Perseverance pays off. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about a, the day in the life. And we know that there is no such thing. There's no, right, every day is a little bit different. But you, your team, students you might have in your lab, what does a quote unquote average day look like for Andy and his research collaborators? Well, on my first day with my mentor at The Ohio State University, <laughs> uh, Jane, she said, no day is the same. Yeah. And I have found that to be true. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that there are things or activities that aren't very much the same. So working on, on various research activities, it's a lot more administration than mm -hmm. I yeah. ever anticipated. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the pieces that maybe is a good example of that, you know, in my PhD training, we had to write essentially an R01 equivalent grant. 
as kind of a milestone, say. And so I've written 12 pages and a good 12 pages, but that, that actual application, when it was all said and done, was 265 pages mm-hmm. of budget and the administration forms. And I didn't have insight into that prior to, sure. to being faculty. Sure. So research activities, administration, I, I typically don't do data collection myself, right. although it's important for me to know what it is and what, what the folks are doing. You yes. know, I've, I've designed those protocols. It is typically much more email or putting out of fires or things that feel like fires sure. than I want. Yeah. You know, and then it's also engaging with students, right? So it's my teaching prep, it's my actual teaching, the grading, yeah. you know, working with the students in my lab. Yeah, that's great. I'm interested in knowing forecasting a decade from now, five to 10 years from now, how do you see the work of you and your collaborators impacting the world moving forward? Pay it forward comes to mind. Mm-hmm. I think that really is the piece that's most important. I've been very fortunate with opportunities that you know have either presented themselves to me or that I've pursued. And so I, I want those that I work with to create and share opportunity with others try to leave the world in a better place than you found it. You know, specifically with the VocFit stuff, to continue to advance that scholarship yeah. um, and, and the reach of it, that it's more well-established, it's better known. It's also very important to me that VocFit becomes sustainable outside of my research program or even myself personally. And so along the lines of commercialization and, and IP, that, that is a big piece of our future planning. And then, you know, another piece that I, I hope we're getting to in a decade is really translating the assessment data, that decision making, into the evidence-based practices. There are a range, a variety of good evidence-based practices to support transition to employment, like maybe like VocFit, they're not all that well known. Right. They're kind of difficult to access, and there aren't necessarily direct links between mm-hmm you know, an assessment you do, a work-related assessment you do with a person with a disability, and then use these evidence-based practices. You right. know, they, they have, say, the best effect sizes or, you know, the most potential for a positive outcome. That's great, isn't it? Yeah. You know, one of the perpetual challenges for us as faculty members is how do we tell a story about the impact of our work? And, you know, within the hallowed halls of the academy, we have all kinds of funky stuff. We talk about citations or journal impact factors, or the the easiest thing probably is to count dollar bills that come in from funding agency. But that never fully captures, you know, one's impact. And here we're talking about an impact on, on the lives of kids and young adults who for a variety of circumstances find themselves at the margins. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and we want to move those those folks into the mainstream to the extent that we can. And I think you're doing fantastic work. We really Absolutely. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. You know, one of the challenging decision points for me is – do I put my energy towards things like generating citations mm-hmm. or do I want users who use this? Right. Yeah. Um, and in groups of five or 10 or 12 a year, right. that really is an impact that I care much more about than impact factor or my H index. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I said that's the, the real legacy. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew. We appreciate your time today. Yeah, you bet. I, I appreciate it, Matt and Avery. Thanks for having me. A lot of, of fun. Thank you. And that's the show. Thank you for listening to another episode of Health and Human Science Matters. If you want to learn more about our College of Health and Human Sciences, go to www.chhs.colostate.edu. 
And if you haven't already, add Health and Human Science Matters to your library of podcasts, give us a rating, and leave a review.